It's good to be back again. Good to see you. First, I want to thank all of you. Um, we love this church, Karen and I. She wanted me to remind you of that. And uh, we just love being here, being a part of it. Thankful for um, being able to get in the pulpit tonight and share some things with you. I want to talk to you a little bit about value. And one of the things we value is you. We value the church and our place here. Um, I don't know if you saw it on the news, but there was a story that just came out. Um, Enzo Ferrari um, was the patron of Ferrari and the whole business and the cars. And um, a lot of drivers drove for him and lost their life just trying to promote that car and win Grand Prix races. And it turns out that they sold one of the cars, the 1962, I think it's a GTO, for $4.8 million this week. Oh, no, I'm sorry. $48.4 million. Is that crazy or what? Somebody values that car enough to pay $48 million for it. That stunned me. I, Don Sitz is a good friend of mine. I go by his shop, and I was there the other day, and I looked at the cars in his lots, and I'm wondering if all those cars put together could equal that. But somebody paid that price. They thought it was that value. Here, let's do this on the other side of the coin. Um, there was a guy named Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Some of you might, might have remembered him. He had a band, famous. And they were preparing for a tour down in L.A. many years ago. And um, they had left the stage to go to lunch and then come back to finish practice. And five of his guitars went missing. It found out that a guy named Daryl that was on security, supposed to be guarding the guitars, nicked off with five of the guitars. Unfortunately, they should have security guarding the security. But what this guy did was he went to a pawn shop in L.A. and he haggled over one of the guitars for 40 minutes and he finally went out with a handful of cash and he thought he'd, he'd gotten a good deal. They gave him $250 for one of Tom Petty's um, guitars. It turns out that the five guitars combined were worth just over $100,000. What did he do? He undervalued what he had, didn't he? He undervalued it. This guy took him, and then he got arrested on top of it. Bad deal. Here's what happens when you undervalue something. When you don't recognize the true value of what you have in your possession, you will always get far less from it than it is really worth. Isn't that true? What are the things that you really treasure and possess? Back in 1976, I thought the most important thing that I treasured in my life before I was a believer um, was to be the leading scorer in the nation, in the NAIA, small colleges. And, and this, is the, this is the thing they gave me with my name at the top of the list for leading the nation in scoring. And I thought that was going to be so precious to me. And I had it stuck in a book somewhere, and I pulled it out last night. Can you tell the color of this picture, of this paper? Yellow. It's yellow. That's how old it is, 42 years old. Something that I really treasured, now it's yellow, and you can barely read the print on it anymore. But I valued that. I thought that was really important in my life. That was kind of what I treasured. And I did get the lead invention scoring, but I look back now and I go, it's such a small thing. The good thing that happened to me just days after I, I got this in January of 1976 is I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And I learned the real true treasure in life. 
a relationship with Christ. Now, here's somebody who paid a pray, the greatest price in history for you and for me. No one paid any price higher than he paid in history for what he's offered us in eternal life. Now, that's a treasure. Tonight, I just want to emphasize the way we get transformed is by recognizing who Christ is and having him in our life and recognizing how valuable that treasure is. There's a story, too, I like to, I like to tell. Um, it's in 2 Kings. So if you have your Bible, you can open up with me. But before I get there, I just want to read one verse for you in Matthew. Matthew um, 6, 19. And here's what it says about treasure. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Your heart will be where your treasure is. So I want to combine that with this story in 2 Kings um, and what we see and how we look at things, especially the idea of the seen and unseen world. Do we believe what the world tells us and what we can see? Or do we really believe what God says is there even when we can't see it? Started in verse 11 of chapter 6, 2 Kings. The mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to him, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but this Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, he tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your very bedroom. I like this. Elisha was something else. What a prophet. What the miracles he had in his life and his vision of what we couldn't see. He had this ability. Let's, let's kind of compare it to today. Um, he would be like a, a surveillance drone without the high price tag. He was like a comic, Marvel comic superhero. He had this ability to know what the king of Syria was thinking in his own bedroom. The king of Syria thought, certainly he, I've got a spy here. And they said, no, it's this guy Elijah. He's killing us. He knows what we're doing before we do it. He was a counterterrorism expert. And you got a guy like that, what do you want to do if you're the king of Syria? You want to get rid of him, don't you? So the king of Syria says, well, then tell me, let's find this guy and get rid of him. Where is he? And they said, they, they, he's in Dotham. So he said, well, he sends his horse and his chariots and a great army. And they came by night and they surrounded the city. Now when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? And his master said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. <laughs> I like this story. It's a great story, isn't it? The guy who's serving Elisha is scared. And so he goes to the door and he opens up. He's probably just giving Elisha his coffee. He opens the door and he looks out and here's this huge army of chariots, horses, and warriors from Syria, the Syrian king. And he knows they're there to get Elisha. And he happens to be with Elisha, so they're going to get both of them. And he asks, he tells Elisha, we got a big problem here. There's a whole army out here. And what does Elisha tell him? Don't sweat it. 
And the, the servant thinks Elisha's lost it. He knows he's a, he's a very powerful prophet, but this gives many of these guys out there. And you know, he says to me, he said, don't worry about it. There's more of, on our side than there are on our enemy's side. But the servant couldn't see it. So Elisha said to the Lord, he prayed, and he said, uh, Oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and he behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So Elisha was surrounded by the Syrian army, but they were surrounded by God's army. Can you imagine looking up and seeing these glorious warriors in chariots of fire? And so all of a sudden, the servant had a completely different attitude. You know what it was? He was kind of giddy. He's going, I'm safe. And he was safe. The difference is when sometimes we get a glimpse of the unseen world and what God really has out there, it is very encouraging. And that's why I say, do you believe only what you can see or do you believe what God is telling you is really there? Hebrews 11 says, uh, let me read that. I got that here. Hebrews 11. It says, how... Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. 2 Corinthians 4.18 is even better for me. I like it. It says, as we look not to the things that, we, that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. A transient's a good word. I'm a basketball player, so I had to go look that up. And it means, it means Temporary. It means short-lived, very short um, piece of work. So we don't want what's transient, but that's what we see all the time. What we don't see is eternal, and we have to have the faith to believe when God tells us that it's really there. Um, a good example, I think, for me, um, when I read this verse about 2 Kings, I right away, and Karen's here, she'll remember this. It goes back to our house in the Philippines. Um, in the Philippines, I've told you so many stories, but many of times we were living in a bit of danger, and sometimes we didn't know how much. We were talking about it on the way over in the car, and we thought back at all these times that the Lord took care of us, and we didn't see how he was taking care of us. But a good example was our house in the Philippines that we lived in for so many, many years. It was up on a hill overlooking Manila, but we were away from the city, and we had to take care of our own security. Um, and then we didn't realize how dangerous it was, and we got robbed. We weren't there very long at all. Somebody came in, and they sprayed something through the window, and Karen and I not, were knocked out, and they came in and took everything. They cleaned us out. They even took my basketball shoes, 12 pairs of size 13s. Now, who's going to wear those in the Philippines? You know, I kept looking for years. Who's got those 13s on around here? <laughs> but what the first thing was, we were really hurt because as Americans, we thought, oh my gosh, we've lost all of these things. But what are those things? They're transient, aren't they? They're temporary. Then we took a good look and we go, my goodness, they didn't touch us. They didn't hurt us. So the most important thing we had was our lives and we were thankful for that. But we had to pick up our security. The problem is we didn't have a gun. I had a baseball bat. I put some bars on the windows and asked people back in the States, all our churches, please pray for our security. We've been robbed. 
And of course, people not only prayed for us, they sent us replacements for even the shoes and the things that were taken from the house. But the robbers would come back. See, at that time, we didn't have phones that would work. You couldn't even call for help. You were isolated up there, and they knew it. You couldn't get the police up there to help you. That was a problem as well. So they kind of knew it was between you and them, and all I had was this baseball bat. And they'd come at like 2 in the morning, and they'd be out there just beyond the yard at the fence, six or eight guys, and they'd be standing there waiting for us to go to sleep. So I would tap my baseball bat on the bars. I'd say, I'm still up, and I kept tapping it. And foolish me, I really thought I was scaring these guys, like they weren't going to come in because I had this bat. And then they'd come back another night, and I'd sit out there, and I'd tap. We had another missionary family living upstairs, the Hillises, great family, and they would say, Tom, do you see those people out there? I said, don't worry, I got my bat. I'm waiting for them. And somehow that didn't make them real assured, you know. Isn't it funny? Because that's what I could see. This is what I could actually do. And you know, they never did come in. They never did come in and attack me. They never did come in. Do you know that for all those years, after that one time, we never got robbed again? That's a pretty good record considering where we were. And then I found out something that I did not know. It wasn't too long after that first robbery that um, I was doing ministry in the whole area with a lot of the poor people in the villages. And I led two fellas to Christ. And when they came to Christ, they were transformed. They were so excited. They realized, this is the treasure we've been waiting for. We want to be forgiven. We know Christ eternally. And I said, you got it. And they said, but uh, Uncle Tom, we got to confess our sin to you. I said, no, you can just talk to Jesus. You don't have to tell me about it. He, he'll take care of it. They said, no, we have to tell you about it. I said, well, if it'll make you feel better, go ahead. And they said, well, we're two of the eight guys that robbed you that night. I said, I wish you hadn't told me that. <laughs> I said, am I still have to worry about those other six guys out there? They said, no, no. I said, you didn't want to come in there when I had that bat, did you? And they started to laugh. I said, what's so funny? They said, Tom, you thought you scared us with your bat? I said, yeah. They said, no, no, sir. It was all the guards that you employed. I said, the guards? This story you're hearing is not unusual for missionaries living in other countries. It's happened to friends of mine and other people. I never saw these guards. I asked them, well, how many were there? They said there were at least six, and they were all surrounded the house. I said, really? And when were they there? Every night that we came, they were there. And I had to admit to him, I said, you guys, I just want to explain to you, I never saw hired these people. Well, then who hired them? I, I, never mind, it's a long story. <laughs> Psalm 34, 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. I, I can't prove to you because I didn't see that they were angels. But I know something. I traveled for all those years to all those countries and Karen stayed in that house alone many more nights than when I was there. And never did they enter that house when Karen was there. And never did she tell me she was so scared that I couldn't go away. She lived with this assurance that she was okay. And we look back now, I'm going, what in the world were we thinking? But when you're in the plans of the Almighty and when you're in his hands, and he has his angels in camp around you, you are safe. And that's what the servant felt. He felt safe. And that's what we felt 
safe. And when these guys told me that, I just giggled. I told them, well, I think you guys are your first angels. They're longtime friends of mine now, and they love to tell the story. But when I read this again, I already got it written in my margin from years ago. It says, tell them about the angels that guarded the house. God does things in the unseen world. And he tells us about it in Scripture, and we need to believe it by faith. But we don't always see it. You know the good part about that story? that people don't understand, I don't think sometimes realize, those angels didn't just show up because Elisha asked his servant to open, their eye, open his eyes. They were there the whole time. There's something going on around us all of the time, and while we're checking our emails and drinking our Starbucks and talking on the cell phone, we're sometimes oblivious to the unseen world around us that God says there is plenty of activity going on. I want you to be encouraged. When you treasure Christ, when you treasure the right things, you are involved in a world that many things are going on and you don't even know it's going on, but it is. And I'm sure many of you have stories of, how did I get out of that mess? How are we protected in that situation? Another time in the Philippines, uh, we went to an island way down south and I think you guys know I took basketball teams for many, many years, many basketball teams. And I would take them on three-week, four-week tours, and we would play 40, 50 games, whatever it took, and we'd go into any village. We'll play your team. Give us the best team you got. We'll play on your court. We don't care what the court looks like. And they would have so much fun gathering a team to play us. And we went to this island in the south, and they had about five kind of major towns on it, and then they had a whole bunch of barangays, they call them. Um, barangays are small little um, villages like. There might be anywhere from four to 5,000 people in it. And then they would put their barangay team against you. So we'd play in the barangays during the day, sometimes two or three in a day. And then at night, we'd play a game in one of the main towns. There were five main towns. And I housed the, teams, I'd house the team on the, on the coast, right there in the Philippine Sea. And we were in these small little thatch roofs, house, good food. We had good water. So we were in good shape. And we just have to travel out in our Jeep every day to play these games. So the last town we were going to play was the biggest town. They had the biggest gymnasium. The games at night would be in the gymnasium. The ones during the day might be on a dirt court. So we're going to the last game. And they saved the biggest town with the best team for last because they figured you're so tired that they could beat you after a week of playing. And I was getting excited. I got the guys all in. I got my unicycles on because I was going to do the halftime show. And the owner of the resort, well, I don't know if it's a resort, the hostel we were staying at, she came up and she said, oh, Mr. Tom, you don't have to go tonight. I said, why? She said, the lights went out. Now, when the lights went out in the Philippines, they went out. Sometimes for two days, sometimes for two weeks, sometimes for longer. But they very seldom went out for a few minutes. And so when the lights went out, she said, the lights aren't going to come on for several days. You're not going to get your last game in. I said, well, we should go up the road anyway because we want to show them that we would play the game if there were lights. So we drove up to the, up to the town about a half hour, and the mayor met me, and he said, oh, Tom, I'm so sorry the lights are out. We're not going to be able to play. They won't probably come on for days. I said, is that the pattern? He says, yeah. I said, well, I'm sorry about that. And it was just getting dark, and we looked over, and the lights in the gym went on. And he said, oh, wait a minute, the lights came on. Oh, that's fantastic. 
I said, maybe we ought to get playing right away before they go off again. He said, well, that's funny. Usually they go off, they don't come back on. But he announced to the town, the game's on again. The lights are on in the gym. So everybody came. And they put about four or 5,000 people in this big gymnasium. Just packed them in there. And I got in there. I said to the guys, listen, if the lights go out again, you all come to me. I used that theory of Nehemiah when he was building the wall. If they came to attack us, we all fight together. We just come together. If there's any. So when the lights come out, you come stay with me so we have security. Okay. And so about three minutes into the game, the lights go out. You could hear the whole crowd groan and start to filter out for the exits because they figured it's going to be out for a couple days. And so I brought the guys over and they said, what should we do? And I said, you guys, we need to pray that the lights go on. I think you might have heard the story of Joe when I asked him to pray for the lights before. And they looked at me kind of, are you serious? I said, well, what else do you want to do? We need the lights to play the game. We haven't done the halftime show and I haven't shared the gospel yet and that's what we came for. Would you mind? Let's just pray that the lights came on. So we started praying and the lights came on. You could call it a coincidence, except in my history in the Philippines, I've seen it happen before. I've seen the rain stop and I've seen the lights come on and go off. And so I believe that God, what he tells me that I can't see can be happening and I believe he has the power to turn the lights on. And so the lights came on and the mayor, you should have seen him stand up. He goes, oh my gosh, this is great. We started playing the game again. We almost got to the halftime. The lights went out again. Back into the huddle. Praying again. You, you guys know what to pray for? Yes, sir. We pray for the lights. Come on, good boys. Start praying. So we're praying. I said, just pray that we can get through the halftime. Because if I can do the halftime show and then share the gospel, the ministry is done. We've gotten the hard part done. So the lights came back on. And I did the halftime show. And I was riding the boy on my shoulders that finishes the show just before I speak and the lights went out. Do you know how frightening it is to be riding someone on a unicycle and they go completely pitch black and 5,000 people in there? It's a rush of adrenaline, I'll tell you. And so we went over together again and we prayed again. And the lights came on and the mayor came down to me. I gave the gospel message and he wanted to talk to me. I said, just a second, I need to do this before the lights go out. And I told everybody we're here and we want to offer you a free Bible study. If you want to get into this Bible study, you just sign up for it. It's free. And everybody started taking the brochures we hand out and there's everybody signing up. I said, oh, it's going to work out after all. Then I said, Lord, you can turn the lights off anytime you want. We got, the, we got the hard part done. And the lights went out and the guys came to me. Hey, Tom, Uncle Tom, we'd like to finish the game. I said, well, you're welcome to. I'm done. But if you want to finish the game, pray that the lights come on. And they, oh, Lord, help the lights to come on. The lights came back on, and the mayor came to me and said, Tom, I know this sounds foolish, but is there any chance that when you, the lights went out, you brought those boys together and you were praying for the lights came on? I said, yes, sir. And he said, they did. I said, yeah, I was here. <laughs> and he said, but he actually made the lights. I said, yeah, I believe it. He said, I need to know Christ now. I said, are you only going to come to Christ just because he could turn the lights on? And he goes, yeah, kind of. <laughs> I said, well, you have only begun to see what he can do in a life because he can do much more than that. He's a much bigger God than we give him credit for. The mayor went down, took the microphone, gave his testimony. I mean, the guy's been a Christian like 30 seconds. And he says, everybody here, I want you to know 
that I just gave my life to Christ because I saw these fellas pray to the Lord and the lights came on and we got to watch this game because the lights are on. And this pastor over here that we lined everything up with, I got to give you a background on the pastor. He had four people going to his church that we were there to try to help recruit people for his church. Four. His wife and his three kids. That was his church. And he had a Christian school and he had four. His wife taught and he taught and he had three kids in the school. They were not accepting him in the town. And you know what the mayor said? The first thing I'm going to do is attend this brother's church over here, right here. I'm going to his church. So you can join me tomorrow if you want. They had 300 in church on Sunday. That's a big boost to his church. <laughs> then he said, and I'm sending my kids to their school. Because if God can do these things, I want to be able to learn more about him. And I would recommend anybody in here, also, you need to look into this Christ that Tom is talking about. I mean, how can you get a better transformation of a life than that? But the story got better. I mean, I've seen these things happen. I, I was thrilled. Speaking of pressure, uh, treasure, it says in 1 Thessalonians, it's in fact, let me read it to you. It says in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, it says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. He's talking, and Paul's talking about the people who come to Christ, the people who he's encouraged, the people he served, the people who actually made commitments for Christ. That's treasure in heaven. And so the mayor did all this. We finished the game. We got in the Jeep. What a day. And we went home to our little hostel where we were staying. And when we got out, the lady said to me, I'm so sorry you couldn't play the game. What took you so long? I said, ma'am, we played the game. She goes, no, you're a missionary. You should not lie. I said, ma'am, I'm soaking wet. I did the halftime show. I spoke at halftime. We got, these are all the responses of the people. We're going to have to give them Bible studies. And my guys, she still wouldn't believe us. I said, well, what will it take you to believe? She goes, oh, quite a bit because the lights weren't on here. I said, ma'am, just because the lights weren't on here doesn't mean they weren't off in that town. And she goes, yes, it does. I didn't understand. And then she explained it. She said, Tom, you don't understand. We have one island, five towns, all these brown guys, one electric grid. When the lights go out, one place, they're out. The whole island's out. When the lights are on, the whole island's on. But you can't have the lights on here and not here. I said, your lights didn't come on? She goes, not all night. I said, now wouldn't you want to believe in a God that could do that? And isn't it funny, so some people will not believe no matter what they even see. How are we going to get them to believe in what's not seen? Because that takes faith. But here's the good thing. I had 5,000 witnesses and the mayor. I said, you just drive on down there and you ask. And she did. She got in the Jeep and went to the mayor. And the mayor said, I saw it myself and I became a Christian because of it. The reason you cannot kill Jesus' story is because of the witnesses. When he fed 5,000 people in one shot, that's 5,000 witnesses. It's hard to deny 5,000 people's story, isn't it? When he came back from the dead and resurrected, he saw over 500 people, says in Scripture. 500 witnesses saw him resurrected. They can't kill Jesus' story. They can't kill our story just because they, they can't see it and they don't want to believe it because it takes faith. But I'm telling you, there is a whole world out there that's unseen. And we are participating in it as Christians. And we see a lot more than a lot, a lot of people don't see. And it's still hard for us, isn't it? 
To this day, that story, I don't have to tell it. That whole island still tells it for me. We played and the lights were on. Tom and his guys prayed for the lights that came on and the Lord put the lights on. And I explained to him, I have no power over your lighting system. I have no power to heal or do any of these things. Don't give me credit for it. Only God can do these things. And Elisha said to his servant, look what God can do. Don't think of what he can't do. What is it that's precious to us? What is it to our treasure? It's you and you and you. That's our treasure. God paid a price so high in history for us. No one will ever approach it. He loves us that much. He gave his son for all of us. And we are that treasure. And when you share with somebody else, like this church does, and we get those names on those little leaves up there, I get fired up. My wife took me around the corner. Look at Tom, look at all the new leaves of people coming to Christ. Because that's our treasure. That's not a scoring record that turns yellow after 40 years. And I don't care if a GTO costs $48 million. I ain't buying it. Yeah, the tin doesn't matter that much to me. I just did a, an event in California. I played in a golfing event, and then I was a speaker. They were raising money for ministry. And this fella got in my car. His name was Connor Tran, and he was going freshman to go to college. Raised Catholic just like me, loves basketball just like me, loves golf. He's got a golf scholarship. And he started asking me questions, and I started answering him. And he just kept asking, and I just kept answering and at the 17th hole, he gave his life to Christ in the cart. And you know what I thought? This is treasure. That's what's treasure for me. That's what we want, transformed lives. And it comes from us being willing to see, believe what you cannot always see. Believe what God tells you is there. Not just because you can't see it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the unseen world around us, for your angels that serve, as you say in Scripture. We believe what the Scripture says, Lord. We believe what your Word says. We believe what you've done for us. And we want to pick the right treasures in our life. For where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. We love you. We thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you for this church, the vibrancy of this church, the leadership of it, the growth of it, and we recognize this is what we have to offer you. We are your treasure. Thank you for what you've done for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.